Hi, this is the podcast channel of Lighthouse Church in Ottawa, Canada. We are a family. We don't do life alone. We are about the one, each and every one. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our hope and prayer is always for life change. Here is today's message. Be blessed as you listen. Today, I'm privileged to bring God's word to you. And obviously, you know, we've been studying the letters. The letters are the epistles in the Bible. And today we want to start out in the book of Galatians. And I am pumped to speak about this particular letter this morning. Can we start out in Galatians chapter 1? Galatians chapter 1 from verse 6 to 9. Galatians 1 from verse number 6 to verse number 9. I'll read that in NKJV and then we'll take off from there. It says that I marvel, I'm surprised, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what you what than what we preach to you let him be accursed as we have said before now i say again let me repeat it so that those at the back can hear me if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received let him be accursed cursed when we look at the letters and i started to talk about this you know over the months obviously most of the letters that you know that are written in the bible the epistles which we call letters are written for a specific purpose we've gone through the book of romans we see that paul wrote the book of romans and he wrote that book to a church he's never visited before he wrote that book to establish his theology to lay out line after line precept upon precept the doctrine of salvation all right, the theology around salvation, especially to a Gentile church. The Roman church, church in Rome was a very, very influential church because this was Rome, for Christ's sake. This was like Lighthouse Church in Ottawa, right? You guys are a big deal. This was a major, major church. And so he writes to stand, you know, to spell out doctrine in detail. He addresses what we assume from his writing to be some kind of division, minor division between Gentiles and Jews because the Gentiles had not received the faith and there was a bit of arrogance going on to say that we are now in the fold. Shame on you Jews, blah, blah, blah. So he addresses that. But the, the theory, I mean, the essence, the thesis of his writing to the Romans is just to establish doctrine. Very neutral letter. He's not angry. He's not upset. Very calm. All right? Very calm. Very level. When we get to the Corinthian church, we see that this church is hashtag jacked up. These guys are wilding out. They are buck wild. They are getting drunk at the communion table. There is massive division in this church. Now, this is division along the lines of personality. So some people say, I belong to Paul. I belong to Peter. I belong to Christ. I belong to Apollos. And Paul had to straighten these guys out. People were in sexual immorality, living in sexual immorality. With reckless abandon, they were completely wild, that church. And so Paul writes the letter to bring correction to the things that he's heard. And so he addresses all the issues in the first letter to the Corinthian church. In the second letter to the Corinthian church, things are now better. But then there is another 
bit of a problem. There's a spot of bother with people who are challenging Paul's authority. And so he brings a bit of correction to that. He speaks about generosity, which we talked about last week. And that's what we have. And then we get to the Galatians. The thing about the Galatian letter to the Galatian church is that, just for a bit of background, because I want you to understand it, is that it was written before Romans and it was written before Corinthians. So when you read the New Testament, especially when you read the epistles, it's not in chronological order. It's not in order of, you know, it's not even in the order in which the writer, whoever it is, wrote the books. Um, the, the, the entire New Testament. So when you look at the Old Testament, there is some form, not total, not some form of chronology going on in the Old Testament. Some form, there are a bit of, um, there's some odd books here and there, like Job, which we, it doesn't fall where it really falls in the book, but in the book, but that's what it is. But when you get to the New Testament, you think about the Gospels, yeah, and then you think about Acts, which is a historical book, and then you think about the letters, and you get to Revelation, which is prophecy. But the letters, though, are arranged in, not in chronological order, but based on volume. And so Romans, being the book that has the most volume, comes first, then Corinthians, and then we get to Galatians. And so because of that, people think there was some kind of, no, there wasn't. Galatians was actually, we think, it was one of the first letters that Paul ever wrote. And he's writing to a group of churches, not just one. The context is important, so stay with me. He's writing to a group of churches, not just one. It's like writing to the churches in Ontario, for example. Um, a number of churches in the region of Galatia. And in this letter, if you read the letter, and I, I, and, you know, I, I, I expect that you would read the letter. It's just, um, it's just six chapters, I believe. Paul is vexed. He is angry. This is by far the most emotional letter that we see Paul write. He is very livid about the situation here. I mean, he wrote to the Corinthians, even though those guys were very messed up, but we don't see nearly as much anger. And I don't, you know, he's white hot when he writes this letter. You can tell that this is one of those emails that you write without thinking, you know how sometimes if you're at work, I don't know if it happens to you, maybe I'm the only one, if I'm the only one, Jesus saved my soul. Someone sends me an email at work, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to type my response, and I'm like, yeah, this is not going to go well. I'm going to show up in HR tomorrow. So <laughs> I put it on pause. I say I'll respond to this email tomorrow because I want to respond from a neutral place. I don't want the emotions to still be hot and raw when I respond. You can tell that Paul wrote this email immediately. He's like, he heard, he's like, what? That's going on? Give me my pen and ink. Because that's what they did back then. P -p 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 dipped it in ink. And he wrote this letter and said, send this to them. At the speed of light, they need to hear from me right away. He's very angry. There is an issue that is burning in his heart. And what is the problem in this church? What's the reason why he's writing this letter? It's the fact that after Paul had planted most of the churches in Galatia and moved on, there were certain people who had a ministry of their own. And their ministry was to follow Paul wherever he went or most places that he went. There were Jews, we suspect. And they will tell the Gentile believers that they needed to observe the law of Moses for them to be saved. So they were saying to them that it was just you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross and all that stuff that Paul told you is not enough. You need to also observe the law of Moses. And the Galatians were starting to do this. And Paul heard that and he's very upset. And I know some of you are like, well... Why don't you just write a letter and correct them? Why is that such a why is that a reason to be so angry? You know, why are you so angry? And sometimes I don't know about you, when you when you encounter people and maybe you see that they get upset or certain things rub them off the wrong way, and you say that they are overreacting. The truth of the matter is that people hardly ever overreact. The problem is that you don't know the context. And so something that looks small to you 
is a big deal to this person. This person is carrying years of baggage and you have just poked a particular spot in the person's soul that makes them to flare up. And you're like, why are you so angry? I mean, I just made a little bit of a joke about your waist size or your, your, your pot belly that's trying to pop out. Bookie hasn't been joking about my pot belly, by the way, okay? I'm just, just an example. I don't know why that came to my mind. Anyways, and the person flies off the handle. Like, how dare you? You're messing with my self-esteem. You hate me. That escalated fast, right? And so when I read this letter, I'm like, Paul, why are you so angry? Why are you, why are you all up in your feelings about this issue? Why? Why? That the law of Moses was a requirement to be saved. Not just your faith in Jesus. You needed to add something else to it. And so I want to read to you the text I read, but in, in the Passion Translation. And then I'll go into my, my, my content. It says that I am shocked. <laughs> I am shocked over how quickly you have strayed away from the one who called you in the grace of Christ. I'm astounded that you now embrace a distorted gospel that is a fake gospel that is simply not true. We think Donald Trump, Trump invented the concept of fake news. Paul said this is a fake gospel. Fake it's simply not true. There is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. You need to help me preach that. Write that. There is only one. Only one. Not two. Only one gospel. The good news of Christ. Yet you have allowed yourself, you've allowed those who mingle law with grace <laughs> to confuse you. There's so much to unpack here. Anytime you mingle the law with grace, it only brings confusion. Fusion, it to confuse you. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel different than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. Let me make it clear. Anyone, no matter who they are, that brings to you a different gospel than the gospel that you have received, let them be condemned and cursed. Full stop. Check out. Signed, not love, just signed Paul. Ooh. Paul's point is simple, but it is very, very important. It's that Judaism is not a path to Christianity. Oh, that, you know, Judaism, which is following the law of Moses, all 613 of them, um, circumcision, eating and not eating certain things, observing certain festivals. He said it is absolutely not, absolutely not a pathway to Christianity. And this is a contentious issue for Paul. And I'm, I'm wondering, why is it so hard? Because Paul calls them foolish. He calls them bewitched. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, these are really hot words, Paul. What are you talking about? He, he is very heated about this issue. And one of the reasons why he's heated about this issue is because it devalues the sacrifice of Jesus. It devalues the, that, that line of reasoning, that train of thought, that doctrine, that theology, that idea that people who are Gentiles, who are not Jews, need to conform to Jewish laws and traditions to be able to be accepted by God. It completely devalues the sacrifice of Jesus. It makes rubbish, all right, of the work of Christ on the cross. They're basically saying that what Jesus said on the cross, which was, it is finished. I believe he said that in, I think it's John 19.30, if I'm mistaken, please forgive me. They're basically saying it's not finished. And Paul says, no, I will not stand for that. Absolutely not. Paul 
you know, yeah, he is upset about this. And in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, as he continues to write down this letter, so he, write, he, he, he spends the, you know, the majority of the letter bringing correction to this point, and he makes an amazing, Paul is such a mind, I mean, such a spiritual mind. He brings such expert defense to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 2 and verse 21, he says this, that I do not set aside the grace of God, because if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. I do not set aside the grace of God because if righteousness, if right standing with God, if being accepted by God comes through the law, through the chopping off of my foreskin, you know, if it comes through what I eat and not don't eat, it comes through what I touch and don't touch, if it comes through the observance of festivals and traditions, then Christ, then in his, in his, what he's saying is, what exactly is the point of everything that Christ had to go through? Which was a lot, by the way, in case you guys forget. That's the first point. It's, it's a hot issue because it devalues the work of Christ. And for us as children of God, we should be very upset Maybe not as upset as Paul, but we should be very, very concerned and bothered when we see any kind of doctrine that takes away from the finished work of Christ. It is not acceptable in any way. It devalues his death on the cross, his suffering, his passion. It devalues his coming to the earth to live a sinless life, to take beatings, to be denied, to be wrongly convicted and murdered. It takes, it makes rubbish of that so paul is like no 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 it's not going to happen the second thing why the second reason why paul thinks that this is worthy of such violent rebuke is that it rocks the foundation of our faith and the bible says to us in psalms 11 and verse 3 that if the foundation is destroyed what can the righteous do it destroys it rocks the foundation it puts a major crack in the foundation of our faith now, I remember many years ago, um, my wife and I had bought uh, an investment property. It's one of the nightmares of our life. Anyways, and this particular property, we were doing some work, you know, doing some renovation and all that. And then all of a sudden, we were doing some work in the basement. And we realized that there was a river that flowed under the basement of that house. True story, not a joke. All right. They dug down a little bit and then water just popped up. After a while, at a particular point, there was like two feet of water in the basement of that house. And I started to bind all the marine spirits in the world. It, ne it did not work, all right, because there was something at the foundation that was problematic. Anytime there's a problem at the foundation of something, that is a, you know, the thing about foundation that makes it dangerous is that you can put a structure in it. You can erect a structure and go up and go as high as you want to, but one day it will come down. And so if the foundation of your faith is rocky, if the foundation of your faith is, is not solid, it means that anything you build on top of it, anything from there, because the doctrine of salvation is the entry point to the kingdom. That's it. The gospel of salvation is the entry point. It's the beginning of your walk with Christ. It's your entry point into the kingdom of God. And so everything else, how you view prosperity, how you view divine health, how you, be, I mean, how you view you know, purpose and the call of God, how you view everything else is on a wrong foundation. It can never be accurate. It is warped. So Paul immediately understands that this is an emergency this is an emergent issue i need to attend to this with a bit of you know fire it rocks the foundation everything is vulnerable 
if the foundation is destroyed. If you, if, you, if you rock the foundation of something, the whole thing will come down. It can take 10 years, but it's going to come down one day. If you build your marriage on the wrong foundation, one day you're going to find yourself in trouble. Anything you build on the wrong foundation, your finances, your family, anything you build on the wrong foundation has a problem. It is at risk. It is at risk. It is at risk. But the Bible says there is no other foundation can any man lay except that which is Christ. Christ is the only foundation that we can have. And so whenever anything attacks Christ and his work, that is a problem. That is a real issue. Devalues the sacrifice of Jesus. How dare you? He's saying to them, I'm, I'm shocked at you. You guys have been, you're under a spell. <laughs> That's his diagnosis. You guys are under a spell. I can't believe this. It rocks the foundation of our faith. But you know, I love how Paul, you need to read the book of Galatians and read it in King James, in New King James. Read it in also some of the more friendly translations, Passion and the Other's Message. It would amaze you how Paul is able to expertly defend our faith. I mean, and he has point after point after point, line up on line, but he, two main points that he talks about that I want, to, I want to just bring to you. He talks about the fact that he talks about Abraham and he talks about the Holy Spirit as his justification for salvation through faith and faith alone. And what he says about Abraham, he says a number of things. But pretty much he's saying this about Abraham, that God's covenant with Abraham came before the law. So let's do a bit of teaching here so that you understand it. God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, 23, there about God came in. He had several encounters with the Lord and God cut a covenant with him. In Genesis 22 and 18, God says these words to him, amongst other things. I can't go into everything right now. He says to him that in your seed, singular seed, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because you have in your seed. And this right here is a messianic promise, by the way. A messianic prophecy where God is speaking about the fact that Jesus, who's going to be the Messiah, who will save and open the door of salvation to all nations of the world, will be a seed of Abraham. So when we talk about Abraham's blessings are mine, that is actually, that is, that is actually a false song. When you say, Abraham's blessings Never mind. That's how we used to sing it when we in Sunday school. Abraham's blessings are mine. I'm blessed in the morning, blessed in the evening. Yes, Abraham's blessings are yours. Fantastic. But the Bible does not talk about Abraham's blessings. It talks about the blessing, singular, of Abraham. The Bible says that, that the blessing, the blessing of Abraham shall rest upon the Jews and the Gentiles. So the blessing of Abraham is that all of us who were foreigners, who were aliens to God, now have the right to be called sons of God. Simple. So if you've been using the Abraham's blessings to claim prosperity, you're, you're out of order. Okay? You're very much out. It's the blessing. That blessing is singular, just like seed. In your seed, it says, all oh, the families of the earth will be blessed. So from the beginning of time, Paul is saying that God always had a global plan about salvation. God had a global view. He always had a plan for all nations, not, not just Jewish people, and that the law, which is what people were trying to enforce on the Gentile church, came 400 years after God had a covenant with Abraham. And so the law that came after the covenant cannot annul the covenant. What a logical, what a very, you know, what a very grounded argument he makes. He says, in your seed, and that seed is Christ. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So all of you who are Gentiles, you know, you're from, 
Uganda, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Singapore, Malawi, you're from Mexico, all of us, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, will come into relationship with God through the seed of Abraham, which was Jesus, which was Jesus, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, all right? That was one of the arguments he made. He made others, you know, he, he's drawing a parallel between Ishmael and Isaac, saying that Isaac was a son of promise, which is a type of the spirit. And that, you know, of course, through Isaac, we all have access to the person of Jesus and then we can be saved. Whereas those who are sons and children after the flesh, like Ishmael, were cast away because the Jews were holding on to the fact that we are, you know, Abraham's flesh and blood. And he's saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> that, do away with that. It is according to faith. It's according to faith. He also tells us something about the Holy Spirit. He says to them that, look, if it's by law, if it's by your works, if it's by you observing festivals, why then is it that you received the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit, by the way, is the seal of God upon us. The Bible says that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We've received a spirit through which we cry, Abba, Father. So one of the things that happens that is the seal, the stamp, the mark that we are children of God is the Holy Spirit in our heart. It says, but you receive the Holy Spirit by faith, not by law. So shouldn't that remind you then that this is all fake news? This is all a fake gospel. So salvation by faith alone, alone, alone has always been God's intention. Oh, Jesus thought about this when he rose from the dead and said, well, now you shall be witnesses to me, to the other. No, no, no. From the beginning, salvation by faith alone has always been Christ's and, and, and God's plan. So circumcision does not make you a child of God any more than buying a raptor's jersey make, makes you a raptor. I mean, <laughs> there's a raptor fan called Navatier, I think is his name. We call him the super fan in Toronto. Um, and this guy... I don't know what it, what it looks like now with COVID, but pre-COVID, this guy had never missed a Raptors game in his life. Think about this. Since he started following the Raptors, he's never missed a Raptors game. He travels with them. He attends all their games. He, wears, he has all the jerseys and all that stuff. But he's not a, on contract as a Toronto Raptor. So God is saying you can do all. You can keep all the law. Even though Paul did say and boast at one time that concerning the law, I was perfect. But that doesn't make you a Christian. It is the contract. And what signs that contract is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the door, is the access point. So if you're boasting in your circumcision that, oh, well, I was circumcised, that means I'm a Christian, even though you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you are a joker. You are a complete joker. Only the blood of Jesus is acceptable payment for the sin of humanity. Only. Nothing else. No additions and no subtractions. And so you see that even though the Corinthians were a messed up church, they got the gospel right. <laughs> Paul could still tolerate them. He can say some nice things about them. He says to them, oh, you know, you guys excel in so many different things. He says to them, the grace of God and the hand of God is evidence in your life. For this church, he has nothing good to say about them because they, they, their foundation was just completely out of order. And I feel, I, feel, I feel Paul's pain as a pastor because it's very difficult to get people saved and grow people in Christ. The Bible considers every child of God that gives, everybody that gives their heart to Christ to have been the result of what the Bible calls travailing. Travailing is, is, is synonymous to what women go through when they have to have a, have a child. You're birthing people into a kingdom. 
you, you, it only happens by... So I can imagine how much prayer, how much effort, how much Paul had to do to get these churches off the ground in the first place. Only for him to go and hear that these people have turned away so fast. And not only that, that they're now circumcising themselves as adults for Christ's sakes. I mean, just imagine how much suffering they're putting themselves through to be accepted by God when the answer was already there. He was really upset by this. And so for all of us, every single one of us, and the reason this is where it comes home now, this is where it becomes practical to you. You must, number one, be willing to defend the faith. You must be willing and able to defend your faith. But before I even get to that, you must understand that there can be no additions and no subtractions from the gospel of Jesus. I know some of you are like, well, yeah, we know that we all put our faith in Jesus. Are you, are you sure? Do you have um, an anointed handkerchief under your bed <laughs> or a mantle under your pillow at night? Are you sure your faith is in only Jesus? Are you, are you positive? Uh, have you had days when you left home without your anointing oil and you were shaking on the road because you thought that this day you will surely meet your end? Have you, have, you, have you had those experiences where you know that you put your faith even sometimes in men? In men, more than you put it in Jesus Christ. You are adding. You are adding. Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's enough for... Listen, one of the things I love about the gospel of uh, 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 faith, right, is that it makes provision for everything. The Bible says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The thief comes not but to steal, John 10.10, 10, to kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. There is no aspect of life that God has not made provision for. If you focus on Jesus and Jesus alone, every other area of life, you can find it in Jesus. Marriage, relationship, raising children, prosperity, your career, your ministry, your health. Everything is provided for in Jesus. I'm not saying you shouldn't read other books or whatnot. But anything that Jesus would not say you should do, that you embrace, you've added something. Your faith has been mingled. Actually, as I was preparing for this, a lot of times are people who are now, maybe you're looking for a job in this season and you've been praying and fasting and in your mind nothing has happened. Now you want to add your own. You want to do certain things that are not particularly right so that you can get a job. God says, look, Jesus is enough. He's enough. Don't allow the cross of Christ to be in vain. Everything, he can lead you concerning every area of your life, but he alone must be the object. No subtractions. No additions. Some of you, when you were leaving home, maybe you were coming to Canada for the first time, your parents, you know, gave you something like a necklace. Always wear this necklace. It's for protection. They gave you some kind of strange soap. And some of you are like, what? People still do that. Yes, people still do that. Give you something that you know that this is not quite Jesus. And it's still with you. You need to go toss that thing out. Only Jesus is enough. Nothing else should be added and nothing should be taken away. From him, so we must all be willing and able to defend our faith. But the question I have when I, when I when I think about Christianity and I interact with many Christians, many of us cannot defend our faith. Let's be let's be frank. Many of us cannot defend our faith because it, it, our faith has certain aspects that are non-negotiable, like this: salvation through faith in Jesus is non-negotiable. You can negotiate around baptisms. You know, should we pray out loud? Or should we just pray solemnly? Those are all methodology. You can, you can negotiate around, around certain things. Some things can never, ever be on the table for discussion. It's, it's just not, it's not in the cards at all. And salvation is one of them. 
how can we see the practical power of God in our lives? Because this is, this is where this gets dangerous. Because we're like, why is it such a big deal? The big deal is that this church, this group of individuals, you could never experience the practical power of God. Because you would always think that there is something more that you need to do. You would always think that something else must be thrown into the mix to see God move on my behalf. You would never have the right key, which is Jesus. You would always mix something else. And as far as God is concerned, whenever you mix something else, God steps out of the equation. It means that he is not involved. You cannot walk in practical victory if your foundation is rocky. How can we see the practical power of God if we cannot defend our faith? And trust me, and if you're going to be honest, if you can be bold enough to acknowledge this in the chat, every one of us, and you should have, I think it's actually healthy, every one of us should have come to a moment in our walk with God where we questioned our faith to say, is this really, am I sure that I have this right? Am I sure that this is the right way? Because there's so many other things out there that we hear. How am I sure? How am I sure that this is the way? Am I sure that this gospel that I embrace, that I have put my eternal destiny, you know, I've banked upon for my eternal destiny. Am I sure that, have you ever been there where you're like, hmm, I hope this thing works. I hope this thing is true. You, you should have been there. If you've not been there, I question your, your thought process. And, and I say that because scripture, it is sound because Jesus did not just give his disciples the, the, the Holy Spirit and say, well, the Holy Spirit would impress it upon your heart that you're children of God. Yes, he did do that. And of course, the Holy Spirit absolutely does that. That's why you come to Christ. But when they sat down to think about things, the Bible says, and I talked about this, on, on, I think, on Easter Sunday, that the, Jesus had to show himself to them by many infallible proofs when he was alive after his death. Why do you think that that was necessary? Why didn't he just go to heaven and, you know, just, they just received the Holy Spirit like we have and they had nothing else to anchor their faith upon? For many of us, and, 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 and I'm going to say some things now that might shake some of you a little bit, but you need to hear the spirit of what I'm saying. Okay, not take it out of context. A lot of us, we put our entire hope, okay, of your Christian experience in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God complete, infallible word of God, and absolutely we should put our faith in the Bible. But you need to think about the fact that the people who believed before us didn't have the Bible. Oh, in Paul's day, the, this church he was writing to, they didn't have the Bible. I hope you know that. We have the benefit of the Bible now, and we can say, yes, I put my faith in the Bible. So how then did the early believers believe? What did they put their faith in? If you think it's the Bible, it's not. They had the law and the prophets, which we know is an incomplete thing. So what did they believe? Have you ever asked yourself that? If all you say is, well, I believe this because my Bible says it's true. It's true. I believe it because the Bible says it's true. But are you sure? A lot of us don't even know how the Bible came to us to begin with. And so when we are really, really up against the corner, that doubt kicks in and aborts you know, our, our efforts. Because we, in our hearts, we don't have a sure enough foundation to say, I stake my life on what I believe is true. Not just because the Bible said so, because experientially I know it. And I can also prove it that my gospel is true. Can you stand and argue that your gospel is true? Can you die for it? Can you die for it? If it's because the Bible said so, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a pastor and I preach the word of God and the Bible. But that's not enough. Because those who first believed did not have the Bible. And guess what? They had much stronger faith than we did. These guys died for their faith. These guys did exploits for their faith. People like Paul went into entire cities and within weeks, the whole city came to Jesus by their faith. We have the Bible. We don't even do a, a, a I mean, 
we know we don't measure up. So what did they have faith in? What did they have faith in? I think the average Christian has got a lot of things wrong because you've been in church so long. You've been in church so long. You know, we, we, we take our Bibles and we, we slap everyone over the head with it and say, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible. But okay, what if you did not have the Bible? Can you still believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Can you? And so I want to teach you how to practically defend your faith to yourself first, and then you can do it to others. Because I sat down and asked myself, if this thing is fake, I'm, I'm doomed. Because if it's fake, <laughs> and Paul, you know, Paul says the same thing, and I'm glad I'm not the only one, because Paul says, look, if, if all we have is hope in this world, and this whole concept of resurrection and being with Jesus after death is all a farce, is all a lie, is, he says, of all men, we are the most miserable. You know how all the urges come to you and you could have cheated and become a millionaire. You could have been a fraudster. You could have been driving the best cars. You could have um, had five wives and three concubines, you know, like your brother Solomon. You could have been wild and barking out. But here you are. You're trying to please the Lord. Some days you're dealing with condemnation. Some days you're like, oh God, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. You're, you're walking this path, this painful struggle to walk the path of righteousness. And Paul is saying, if, the, if you're saying to me, that this thing is all fake, then we are the most miserable of individuals ever, Christians. We should just put, when you sign your name, just write miserable deji or something because we are very miserable people. And the reason why he can say that is because obviously Paul sat down once and he thought about it and said, this thing better be true. This thing better be right. But guess what? Paul had enough ammunition to say, look, I stake my life on it. I will die for what I believe. So now, how do you defend your faith? Please listen to what I'm about to tell you very well. This might be the most important thing you've ever heard about your faith in life. When Jesus died, in the book of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, this is when shortly before he ascends into heaven, <laughs> he tells his disciples, He's teaching. The Bible says he shows himself to them by many infallible proofs, blah, blah, blah. But then he gets to chapter 8, verse 8. Actually, before that, they ask him a question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put into his own, you know, his own hands, his own care. Um, and then he says, but you, you, he's talking to you now. <laughs> you shall receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you you okay all of you shall be witnesses to me in jerusalem in judea in samaria to the ends of the earth stay stay with me for a second and understand the progression he says in jerusalem in judea in samaria to the ends of the earth. Again, God always had a global agenda in mind. Stay with me. Stay with me. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. That's the strategy he's giving them. He's prescribing to them the pathway, how they should go about propagating this gospel, how they should go about being witnesses. The, the whole idea of being witnesses by the way, I can't even touch that right now because it's a very loaded term. 
you can only be a witness of what you've experienced, by the way. And so, uh, okay, good. Let, me, let, me not, let me not digress. I'm not going to finish. Anyways, so think about this. Think about this. That Jesus is he, he's now going to heaven. Shortly after he said those words, and the Bible says he's taken up into heaven before their very eyes. An angel appears and says to the men of Galilee, blah, blah, blah. This same Jesus who you see today, and so on. And he leaves them. He leaves them with these words. Go to Jerusalem and start my gospel. Preach me in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria. Now let me teach you a bit of geography, Bible geography. Jeru Jerusalem was in Judea, okay? Judea is considered Judea a, like a province, all right? Province of Judea. And Jerusalem was the capital of that province, all right? And then just south, north, not south, north of Judea, you had Samaria, all right? And north of Samaria, you had Galilee. Uh, say that again. Jerusalem, which was in Judea, after Judea, just north okay, of Judea, you had Samaria. And then north of Samaria, you had Galilee. And that's why Jesus, every time he had to come to Jerusalem, would have to pass through Samaria. And that's where he had an encounter with a Samaritan woman. And we are actually told, or we, we know from history, that Jesus probably came to Jerusalem only maybe three times, maybe four times in his entire ministry. The majority of his ministry was in the north which was in Galilee. So let me say, I love that man of Galilee because he focused his ministry. He was in the wedding and the Cana of Galilee. Galilee was where he did most of his work and he would come to Jerusalem occasionally, three times, sometimes for the festivals, the Jewish festivals, all right, the feasts. But he, he did not do most of his ministry. He did not carry most of his ministry in, in Jerusalem. It was in Galilee. And his disciples were all Galileans. Now, this is an important thing to know, that his disciples were Galileans. They were not Judeans. Okay, they were not from Jerusalem. They were not from Jerusalem. Why is that important? It's important because we've erroneously thought, as a body of Christ, people teach us that, well, start from your Jerusalem, start from your own house. The truth is that Jerusalem was not their house. They were Galileans. Uh, that's why when Peter was on the court, they were able to identify him by his accent. <laughs> Remember that? The lady said, you speak like him. Your accent betrays you. You have... Uh, uh, a Western European accent. You cannot possibly tell me you're from America. You sound like you're from Russia. The, his accent gave him away. And, and, and because they were all Galileans. And so these guys were with Jesus. They did a lot of works in Galilee. Jesus would obviously from time to time travel, sometimes you know, to Jerusalem, through Samaria. Um, and he would go back to Galilee. But of course we know that he came to Jerusalem for the last time and then he was executed and killed in Jerusalem. So when Jesus said to them, stay with me, stay with me, that go and start teaching this gospel in Jerusalem, it's not because they had any home court advantage. Let me say that again. They had no home court advantage. Jerusalem was not their home. It's not like they had Peter's mother-in-law's house to go and sleep and rest. And Jesus said, well, start from there because it's convenient. No, 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 no. It was not their home, their hometown. They were Galileans, all of them. All of them were Galileans. But the reason why Jesus said they should start from Jerusalem was a strategic advantage. And the reason is because Jerusalem was where he was killed. <laughs> okay, let me explain what that means. Now, if Jesus did not rise again, if, it were, if it's all a lie, you cannot go to the very place where your grave is and start to preach 
he rose from the dead. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? It, it made no sense. If you want to tell a lie, go to Asia Minor. Go far away where nobody knows the story about how you were killed. Then you can sell them a lie that, oh, there was a guy called Jesus. He was killed by the Jews and he rose from the dead. You don't go to the place where they can go to your grave, roll away the stone and produce your dead body. But not a single person was able to do that. And not the authority of the day, not the government, not the priest, because his body was nowhere to be found. And that's why they came up with this ridiculous lie that, oh, they came and stole his body. Who came and stole his body? Was it Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, the women, when you, you guarded the tomb with Roman soldiers? Was it Peter, who was such a chicken that he denied Jesus and ran away, went back fishing, that came all of a sudden with what what with, with guns, right? And he fought off the Roman soldiers, and then they carried the body of Jesus and took it to where? It made no sense. So Jesus was basically saying to them, go to the one place where you can never be disproved when you say that I rose again. It was a strategic advantage. If I was, it, listen, I want to tell a lie and tell someone that, oh, you know, I drive a Rolls Royce. I don't. I'm not going to tell that lie to my neighbor because he sees me driving my Honda Tucson every day. He sees my garage open and he sees my kids' bicycles in there and he sees my white car. No Rolls Royce. You don't come and tell a lie where it can, it, I mean, if, if you were in Jerusalem, you'd just be like, look at this madman. He rose again, really? Okay, just hold on one second. Let's go. We know where he was buried, right? He was buried in Joseph Arimathea's grave. Let's go, let's go. Pro produce his body. But not a single person could produce his body. Not one. Not one. That's to tell you that this thing is true. It's not a lie. Your gospel is the truth and the only truth that there is. You can't go, I can't tell my wife, if I want to tell a lie, I can't tell my wife, oh, I just did a 40-day fast. And she's like, look, I just saw goat meat in your mouth this morning. You don't lie where, you, where anyone can disprove your lie. It would have made no sense. So Jesus says, go to Jerusalem and start there. The very place where I was killed, where people saw me hang on the cross. Tell them that that same Jesus, that one, that man, remember him, whom you killed is alive and well. Not only that, do miracles in my name. So when they ask them, in whose name do you do this miracle? They say, when you read Acts now, you read it with a different eye, because every time that something happened, they were quick to say, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you killed, and God rose him from the dead. He's the reason why we can do these miracles. If you have that understanding, your faith will be unshakable. These guys were ready to give their lives for it because they, were, they went to the very place where he was killed and said he rose again. Produce his body. If it's a lie, show us. We know where Lazarus was buried. We saw his body, I mean, before he rose from the dead. Show us where Jesus is. Not a single person till tomorrow can ever find out where his body lay because he's not there. Come on, can you help me tell someone? He's no longer there. He's risen. He's alive. He is the truth. He is the truth. You don't propagate a lie where it can be easily disproved. Jesus was trying to say, I'm, I'm, go now and tell them I'm no longer in that grave. How do you defend your gospel? How? Think about this, this, this one. This is mind-blowing. That the mother of Jesus, his mother, was a Christian. Listen, I know it sounds basic, but no one knows your humanity and your frailties more than your mother. I mean, she literally pushed you into this world. You were about to die in the birth canal, if not for her strength. She brought you forth. And here you are now. You start to tell people, I am God. His mother is like, are you, are you, are you mad, bro? 
<laughs> like I just birthed you like a few years back. I remember the experience. His own mother called him Lord. Think about that. It had to be true. She knew. She knew that of all my children, this one, I don't know where he came from. I remember the encounter I had with the angel, his mother. What do you have to do to convince your own mother that you are God? Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. She was one of those. The Bible says that they continued steadfastly in one accord. She was one of those 120 people. His mother believed in him. How authentic do you have to be? We say all the time that a prophet is without honor in his own house. Yes, that's very true. But Jesus wasn't one of those prophets because his own mom knew that this is not my child. <laughs> this is God in the flesh. What about his brothers? His elder, James, no, he didn't have an older brother. He had half brothers because they were sons of Mary, but obviously not, and, and Joseph, Mary and Joseph, but obviously they didn't have the same father because his father was the Holy Spirit. And his brothers, actually, if you read the Bible, the Bible is explicit. Doesn't infer, explicitly says that his brothers did not believe in him when he was alive. Because all the while, Mary used to tell them, you see that your brother, he's a very special child. You know, we, I had him before we got married because the Holy Spirit came upon me. And you know, the mischievous kids are probably like, yeah, yeah, right, mommy. You can tell yourself whatever you want. We know where babies come from, all right? We might not have gone to university, but we understand human anatomy and all that. Yeah, he's God, right? Haha, <laughs> God indeed. They would have been mocking him, and they did mock him. They told him, if you, if you say you are who you are, why don't you go to the feast? Let everybody see you. Why are you hiding? Because the Bible says, because his brothers did not believe in him. Oh my God. And that makes sense. What would my brother have to do? Fikayo, to tell me that, you know I'm the Messiah. You know I'm God. And if I'm like, hey, hey you, are, you are God in the flesh. You that, nah, no, you're not God in the flesh at all. And so when he rose from the dead, that convinced his brothers because they saw him. And James, the, the guy who wrote the epistle, James, was not James, the brother of John, not a disciple of Jesus. This was James, the brother of Jesus now, not the ones who followed him in his day. Not James, James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was killed early in the early church. He was, he was killed by, by Herod. So he didn't have a long life. He didn't write any books. When you read about James in the book of Acts, he was a leader in the Jerusalem council. That's James, the brother of Jesus. So what do you have to do to convince your own brother that you are God? And if you read his, his epistle, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's true. These are the things that they saw as the early church before the Bible was ever printed that gave them confidence in the God that they served. Do you have the same confidence? I can go on and on. There's so much more. I can go on and on and on and on. There's so much more. What about the fact that the witnesses, the first people who saw him were women? Some of you are like, what does that mean? The first people who saw Jesus alive were women. Now, if you want to tell a lie, if you wanted to tell a lie back in the day, you would not use women as your witness. The reason why is because the testimony of a woman was not valid in court. It was a society that was very highly discriminatory against women. Very patriarchal society. Actually, people prayed. They, they considered it a curse when a man had only daughters back in the day. There was a saying that cursed is the man. Woe is the man who has only daughters. Can you imagine that? I know some of the wokies and the woke mob are going to be like, oh, how dare they? Back in the day, that was how the Jewish custom was. And so if you wanted to propagate a lie that you wanted people to believe, you will never say women saw him first. The reason why you can document that women saw him first is because that's the way it happened. It's the truth. It's the truth. There's so much. There's so many reasons why. 
So let's become experts at defending our faith. There is only one, there is no other gospel. No other gospel. Jesus in John 14, 6, I tie this up now. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. You can't come to the Father by circumcision. You can't come to the Father by keeping all the law. You cannot come to the Father by observing Jewish customs. He says, no, I am the way. Only me. Acts 4 and verse 12. Peter is speaking. This is after some of the miracles that he started to wrath. And he says that there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. It's only Jesus. That's it. Simple. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, the Bible says that for there is one God and there is one mediator, one between God and man, and he is the man, Jesus Christ. Only him. Only him. And I know that... <laughs> As we get into this culture, like I said, you joke about the woke mob. People will be like, that's just discriminatory. Why is there just one way? You know, what, what are you now saying about other people? You know, that, that doesn't sound like diversity and, and inclusion. That's not politically correct, you know. It doesn't have to be politically correct if it's true. All right? By the way, I tell you this, and this is the biggest revelation that you might need to know. Christianity and Jesus broke the boundaries on diversity and inclusion many, many years ago. They were way ahead of their time because it was in Jesus that he preached the global gospel. He said, it's for everyone, everyone of every nation, of every tribe. He broke down all the walls and said, everyone, come unto me and drink. If you are excluded, it's because you choose not to be included. It's the most diverse. He says, my, my, my plan has always been global, not for a tribe, not for an ethnic group. They were just a pathway to birth my agenda. My agenda is absolute diversity and inclusion. So if you exclude yourself, it's not because he excluded you. Jesus was ahead of his time. He included women in the fold, poured the spirit out upon women. He broke all the boundaries that brought about division in his day with the work that he did. But in the last days, the Bible says is that many would fall away from the faith because the doctrine of demons would be introduced into the church. I don't see any better way to attack our, our faith than to attack the foundation, which is that it's only Jesus. People start to tell you things like, oh, there's more. Why can't you mix this with this? Syncretism where you can you know, mix your traditional faith with, you know, with the Christian faith. Or they tell you that, oh, Christianity is a white man's gospel. Ridiculous things. Jesus was not a white man. Like, get some knowledge. It's not a white man. The, the whites or the white people also were, you know, evangelized. They were preached to. From the beginning of time, God had a global gospel in mind. The reason I said all that today is to say this, that make sure your foundation is solid. Because one day, you're going to need a solid foundation to push back against things happening in your life push back against the thought process or something that's telling you that there's something else that's needed. Only Jesus, only Jesus is enough. It does not need to be politically correct. Paul is angry, angry guys, because people understood or misunderstood the doctrine of salvation. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel. If you want to be a blessing to others, share the message. To stay connected, download our app and follow us on Instagram at Lighthouse Church Ottawa. We love you.